welcome everyone to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. We've got an exciting uh, guest today, so we've got Al Hardy. Uh, now, Al is an accomplished Australian journalist who these days is usually based in the UK or the US, and Al's written for The Monthly, The Times, GQ, The Guardian, Foreign Policy, Vice Magazine, and the ABC, just to name a few. But I guess what's drawn us today to have a chat to Elle is her new book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. And uh, Troy and I have been fortunate enough to read the book, and it's an awesome read. And for people who were in Pentecostalism, I didn't know a lot of that history. How about you, Troy? Were you aware of a lot of that history before you read the book and the craziness? Not all of it, of course, but a lot of it I was quite familiar with because I did a lot of that research into the Revival Centre's Pentecostal cult. And so the, the history of Pentecostalism was was definitely something that I was familiar with. But I think whether you've been in Pentecostalism for a while or you've never been in Pentecostalism or you've left, this is still a must-read book. There is no doubt. I'm going to throw that right out there at the start and gush for you, Elle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant book and definitely worth reading. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm just just thrilled that you read it, and that yeah, it's you know, people that have been in you know inside the tent, so to speak, um, have enjoyed it. That's really important to me. So thanks very much. It's good that you picked up on the tent analogy because it was often like tent revivals. Elf. So you're right. We were inside the tent. I've given you a little bit of an intro, but besides your bio, you know, and that's the stuff that we get off websites and wiki and wherever else we can get it. Who's El Hardy, and what led you to write this book? Who am I? God, that's that's a question. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm a journo, um, and I guess kind of in in better traveller. Um, I do be, even before I became a journo, I just used to I don't know pack up from my job every year or two and go tra- tra- traveling to some crazy places. So um, just always interested in yeah, you know, kind of more fun, far flung parts of the earth and and whatnot, and was able to kind of merge that into journalism a few six or seven years ago now and uh, so yeah I've been pretty lucky I've been um yeah doing a fair bit of foreign correspondence and, and mainly kind of settled in America a few years ago no I'm not especially based there now and uh yeah I was doing a story on uh this John School movement which is uh you know sort of the air quotes anti-sex uh anti-sex trafficking anti anti-modern slavery uh movement that a lot of Pentecostal groups are running and uh yeah, they, these people just didn't really want me following them around. You know, they're pretty, you know, 2018 red Texas. They weren't, um, you know, thrilled uh, by the fake news media. And, yeah, they um, – and, you know, kind of after a few days when they'd made it pretty difficult for me once I was down there to kind of meet up with them and follow them around despite inviting me there, I came to realise that the inspiration for starting their school was Christine Kane, who – is an Australian woman who's a Hillsong alumni and uh, she had done a TED talk or something like that and, and she's really prominent. She's one of two very prominent women in this anti, uh, anti-human anti trafficking movement. Her name will be very familiar to a lot of our listeners, by the way, Christine Kane, being an Australian Pentecostal. Yeah, okay, cool. I wasn't sure how well known she is here because I know obviously A21, which is the big organisation that's really behind that stuff, um, is probably bigger in the US and places like that. Um, but yeah, so she was, and then she started to really fascinate me. So I wound up doing another story on her. And um, just in the course of doing these couple of stories, I was just reading um, a lot of stuff and trying to get my head around the Pentecostal movement. And there wasn't really any stuff in, you know, in the press. And so I was sort of having to go and chat to academics and and there's, you know, so many really great people studying this stuff in, in universities all over the world and was reading about it and just, it was really just, uh, wow, there's this huge global story happening that no one really seems to be on, you know. Um, a, a lot of people working in media like myself, generally pretty secular, liberal, middle-class kind of people, you know, um, that it's kind of can quite easily miss a story like Pentecostalism. And, uh, yeah, I just got super fascinated by it. And, you know, I'm really interested in, yeah, kind of big global stories, I guess. And um, it was just an excuse as well to, to travel to a few pretty cool places that I hadn't been yet. So kind of merged all three. And, yeah, I was just speaking to a lot of journo friends and no no one had heard, you know, about 600 million Pentecostals and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think I wrote what I, I think is probably the first kind of um, non-academic book that, that looks at it as a global phenomenon. Um, so, yeah, it's just really hoping to make people aware of something that's quite significant and uh yeah i guess kind of hopefully start a conversation around that well we're really glad you noticed because there is a lot going on in the pentecostal world and when we did our research into you it says you know we discovered you're raised a catholic 
um, but you also describe yourself as agnostic. So does that mean you've gone into research and writing this book with an openness that some of this may be genuine and of substance or was it more sort of investigative? Yeah, look, um, a, a bit of both, but I certainly um, had my mind opened a lot more in the process, actually. I think that was quite interesting. As I said, you know, raised vaguely Catholic, but kind of once my grandpa died and stuff, we didn't have to go to church anymore. It's, you know, and everyone has their various things. It's kind of, you know, when you're a kid and you don't have to spend your Sunday at church anymore, it can be exciting. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I got pretty into new atheism when that was kind of a big thing. Um, and so part of this, I think, was atoning for my sins a bit, because I think it, in the end, it kind of made me, that movement made me and, and a lot of other people, I think, a bit nasty politically and a bit, you know, very judgmental and, you know, sort of treating people that believe like they're a bit stupid. Um, and I know that I certainly kind of fell into that, um, you know, for a few years almost. And it, yeah, just, just, I think made me a worse person. So in some ways it was just funny that this kind of fell in my lap. Um, so yeah, it was really cool to meet a lot of people and understand, you know, what Pentecostalism is giving people, which I think, you know, is really not very well understood that it's so much about the here and now and improving your material conditions, particularly, you know, in places like sub-Saharan Africa and, and Latin America. Um, so, so yeah, look, and, and I went in, yeah, with a, I came out of it, I think with a much more open mind and, you know, there's a, there's a piece that I do on, on faith healing in the book in South Africa and Mozambique and, I know some researchers have gone out from American universities and kind of studied some of this faith healing that was going on in Mozambique. And, and I did kind of come and, and they're pretty convinced that, you know, something happened. doesn't always work. It doesn't just mean that, you know, you can stand up out of the wheelchair, but, it, but I did find myself kind of believing that, yeah, when miracles are the only game in town, sometimes they could happen. And I guess I'm just pretty comfortable now and as, as just someone that thinks that, um, yeah, there are things that we don't know and don't understand in the world. And I actually kind of like that probably <laughs> much more so than, than when I used to be a lot more, think that I was a lot more certain about things. So it's interesting just to pick up on that point in the book, you do say that in Africa, you really wanted to experience a miracle. Did that happen for you? No, it didn't. I did go through a, a full kind of faith healing process um, with, with quite a nice kind of small time preacher who really just does want to help people. And, you know, in, um, another time he just would have been a Sangoma, you know, a traditional African healer. And it's, it's, the whole process is very syncretic. Um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily feel so Christian or Pentecostal. Um, it's, it's, it's very obviously infused with the local culture and that's what Pentecostals are so good at. They look and sound like the place that they're from, you know, it's Hillsong would be, you know, fairly unrecognizable to some people in inner city Johannesburg um, and, and other places like that. So, so yeah, look, I, I was kind of keen for something to happen, you know, so I sort of written the book. I wasn't in the best time in my life. I'd gone through through a bad breakup of a long-term relationship and I was just kind of like I was the average person that tends to go to a lot of faith healers, you know, a young-ish woman, um, you know, and it's, you know, often matters of the heart or fertility and things like that. Um, and, yeah, I was definitely open to it, but, um yeah, nothing happened except the stuff that he gave me. I got very high off the kind of some bush, bush hallucinogens and I, yeah, kind of thought, I think I thought I was in the travelling Wilburys for a while or something, like I was really out of it. Um, but there's still no miracle, unfortunately. Well, fortunately for you, a few of the uh, travelling Wilburys have dropped off the perch, so there's vacancies there. So if you, you could become part of them. The dream could come true, Al. I don't have the talent, unfortunately. <laughs> Look, it's arguable that they didn't either. <laughs> I want to pick up on the point about the new atheists, because I think a lot of people that step out of evangelicalism and, and out of Pentecostalism, that tends to be a, a port of call, is that new atheism stuff. And, and I agree with you. I, I sort of label them now as fundamentalist atheists. Mm. And you see a, a, a reaction to that online as well now, don't you, with sort of like the graceful atheists and the, the understanding atheists. These are some of the terms that people are using. Um, so, and, and also, I want to also flag that Tara Jean Stevens in her Heaven Bent podcast also mentioned some of these miracles in Africa, and I think cites some of those studies as well. So even though she's moved away from Pentecostalism, she also looks at it and goes, well, I just don't know, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't know how to answer those. Mm, okay, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. But yeah, it's pretty well known. I think this this one study um, that, that was done out of the US. Um, and sorry, the name escapes me for the moment. Um, but and I, I do cite it in my book. But, but yeah, I think there's a I think there's maybe more of a comfort um, 
politically and spiritually for a lot of people now. I think that they did sort of enter that new atheist movement when, hang on, this is as fundamentalist in, in many ways as the as the people they disclaim. And, and like I said, I think it just has a really nasty edge. Um, so, yeah, I, I, th- I think a lot of people have kind of moved away from that and, you know, I think it's probably sounds very basic but you know it's probably good that we you know to have a bit more of an open mind and try and be a bit understanding of other people it's probably not a bad principle to try and move through life with yeah absolutely and i guess just to step back a little bit just into the the history type stuff because you know some of our listeners um wouldn't know the history just as i didn't know it that well but also those who weren't involved in pentecostalism may be also interested. So, you know, you note that a lot of Pentecostals are historyless uh, or at least ignorant of their own mo- movement's beginnings. You trace those beginnings of Pentecostalism to the Azusa Street Revival and two of those main players were Charles Parham and William Seymour. Can you tell us a bit more about that, some of those things that came out during your research and some of those, I guess, that early history of Pentecostalism? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it fascinated me just talking to a lot of people around the world and even in America around the corner from Azusa Street. I spoke to, you know, really considered young Latina woman who converted and was very pious and she'd never heard of William J. Seymour or Azusa Street that, you know, was literally around the corner. Um, so, So it is quite interesting. But, you know, I think part of Pentecostalism is always kind of looking forward. Um, so, so that's, yeah, just more the temperament, but I actually trace it a little further back than Azusa Street to, to Charles Fox Parham's, um, a revival almost in, in Kansas. Um, so I went out to the house there. It was actually bought by a Catholic church. Um, and they get the odd pilgrim out there. Uh, but yeah, he was really, he was a, a 1900 Methodist preacher in Kansas at the, in the late 19th century. They said he could say 250 words a minute. Um, and he fell out with, with Methodist hierarchy pretty quickly, um, as a young man. And, and he was really interested in, in healing. He and his young son had both had a lot of sickness. And he was, yeah, really interested in that. And also taking on that there was an increased interest in the Holy Spirit and in, you know, speaking in tongues, which had been confined to a few monasteries basically since since the days of the apostles. And it, um, I think there's some evidence in the in the dark or the Middle Ages that it was um, it was almost seen as like a sign of possession that needed to be exercised from people by, by some people in Catholicism. So so it was really a not something that was much done. But but there's certainly some evidence that popping up in parts of America as things were at the time you know it's such a, it was such a melting pot it was such an interesting place at the time but but Fo- Charles Fox Parham and his followers uh, had an all-night prayer and and fasting ritual um, on New Year's Eve of 1901 and uh, yeah eventually the the spirit came to, to a lady in the congregation called Agnes Osman and they all thought that she was speaking Chinese you know, quite a lot of early Pentecostals set sail to places like China and died pretty horrific deaths of dysentery and stuff like that when they got to this land and couldn't speak the language. Uh, but, but yeah, the congregation kept praying. Parham, it came on him, him a few days later. I think he thought he was speaking Swedish. Um, and they, you know, sort of started telling, spreading the word as, as he would and, and were fairly ridiculed in the press. And this is also, you know, Topeka, Kansas, it's a pretty small place. But but Charles Fox Parham went, went you know, wandering around um, the area, so Texas and Oklahoma and places like that, spreading this this new bent on, on theology. In 1906, in down in Houston, Texas, he was setting up a, a little school down there to, you know, preach health and healing and the spirit and tongues and all of that. And a, a black man, the son of freed slaves, uh, came to join at um, William J. Seymour. And he, because of Jim Crow laws, he actually had to sit out in the corridor and take his instruction from Seymour, uh, from Parham. And uh, Parham was pretty, I, mean, I think he was probably fairly of his time, but he was, you know, pretty, pretty standardly racist as well. Um, but they, they obviously had some sort of relationship because they did go out preaching together and Parham would preach to the whites and then, you know, Seymour would get a turn preaching to the black people. Um, and, and Seymour really seemed to, yeah, he, he was a real true believer. Uh, he he uh, converted to, I think, Methodism or something along the way in his travels. He let, you know, the South was becoming a pretty brutal place for, for black people. And he had actually lost an eye to smallpox when he went up to Cincinnati and worked in a factory. And he saw that as a sign of God because he delayed what he felt was the call to minister. So when he saw Parham, he was, you know, really kind of, had a real fervor for it. And I think it was just one of those perfect moments of history, you know, where a whole lot of stuff comes together. But um, yeah, so Seymour took this on and took it very seriously. And it was 
complete opposite of Parham. You know, he's a really pious, quite austere kind of man. And he went up to Los Angeles. He was invited to preach up there and started, you know, telling the congregation about these tongues and, and all these gifts that could be bestowed upon you. And the church wound up locking him out. You know, they thought that he was a madman, basically. But he had a small group of followers and they um, rented out a, a place and, you know, did several nights of, of, they were prepared to go for weeks of prayer and fasting rituals. And and then the spirit came on the congregation and it sort of exploded, you know, in a number of people at once. And it was a really profound moment. Uh, they wound up falling through the floor. You know, so many people were coming over days and days to see this. But I think what's really interesting and why Seymour is kind of credited as the father of Pentecostalism, you know, not a, not a white man, <laughs> I always think that's quite interesting, is is basically because of the press. Um, so Los Angeles was pretty buzzing, you know, place at the time. It was the end of the frontier. People were coming from, from all over America and all over the world to work there and they had a, you know, suitably large and vigorous press and the newspapers started printing these wild accounts and, you know, I've quote some of the journalism in there like you'd, you'd never get away with that today um but it really excited people but interestingly it also the day that it hit the papers was the same day that news of the san francisco earthquake in 1906 hit the papers a lot of people thought that was a sign of the end um you know they were all pretty pre-millennial back then and uh so so that really kind of heightened the urgency and more and more people were coming to the church and getting swept up and and uh, yeah, feeling the spirit, and and it really just started taking off around America, and then the world from there. Did you have a look at the way it sort of came to Australia as well? Like when we were raised Pentecostals, that's where it came from, right? It was the Azusa Street revival. Yeah, so that that's interesting because I um, yeah, different you know sort of different Pentecost groups. Yeah, some people just aren't historical at all, and some are. I did a little. Uh, did did you ever um, learn much about um, Dowie? Yeah, okay, so he was, um, so I didn't really trace the early origins in Australia, but he was quite an interesting figure. So, yeah, John Alexander Dowie, he was he was born in Scotland, I believe. Yeah, and he had a sort of a utopian society group, I should say. Today we'd call it, you know, a Waco-esque sort of enclave, wouldn't we? Yeah, so from memory, I think he was in Adelaide and then he went over to um, Illinois and there was, yeah, they, a group of, yeah, formed, like you say, almost a utopian community that I think was called a carefully devised large-scale platform for securities fraud. So, yeah, there was quite a there was quite a lot going on around that kind of Illinois area at the time that, you know, taking this on because Amy Semple McPherson kind of came out of that crowd. See, it's funny you say that about the securities fraud because I studied Pentecostal history at my AOG Bible College and that was never mentioned, right? <laughs> he was just this utopian kind of start, trying to put together this community and it was all lovely. You know, if anything, we kind of looked at the Dowie story and went, oh, maybe you want to be more in touch with your community rather than withdrawing, but certainly nothing about securities fraud. We did not learn that in Bible college. Al. <laughs> did you? Um, did, did they teach you about uh, Wilbur Valiva? No, I don't remember. Oh, no, he was he was a guy that was. I think he deposed Dowie and took over. But he like, yeah, he he was he was a he was something. Um, he was a real really prominent flat earther. And the various people in, yeah, he kind of intersects in a lot of history. I saw someone, yeah, doing a history of them that wasn't really to do with Bible stuff when he popped up. So he was, yeah, he was a, a pretty nasty dude, I think. But, yeah, sort of one of those just strange people that pops up. And in the end, he was involved in the downfall of Charles Fox Parham where um, it was rumoured that um, Fox Parham was a sodomite and, and you know, flies and stuff were spread around before he'd go into towns to, to, to preach. And he was, yeah, kind of just cast out by everyone. And, yeah, Valiva was had something to do with that as well. Imagine that, Brian, secretly gay Pentecostal preachers. I can't imagine. No. And, uh, and, and child abuse or, you know, who no. knows? I mean, yeah. God. Wouldn't have happened. You you did just touch on um, Amy Semple McPherson, and you when you talk about her in the book, you you call her a kind of a, a proto televangelist. Tell us a bit more about her. Yeah, she she's she's such a fascinating uh, woman. So yeah, in, I kind of picked I th who I thought were three of the most important influential figures to really tell the story of early Pentecostalism. There's so many others, obviously, but yeah, Semple McPherson was the the third that I chose of the 
unholy trinity, I suppose. And, and she really, you know, they said that she had an incredible um, knack for, for a crowd. She could just sense an audience waning. Um, and I think that's really, you know, from the earliest days, that's what Pentecostals have been great at. You know, it's, it's a politician skill. I often liken it, you know, I've spent time with, with some of, met a few of, you know, really big preachers with private jets and things like that. And they do have that incredible thing that I remember always hearing about Bill Clinton, that you're in a room full of people and they make you feel like you're the only person in the room. Just that really intense charisma in both sense of the words. And and she, she certainly had that. So she, uh, her, her and her first husband sort of left those, that group in Illinois and, and went off and he died of dysentery in Hong Kong. They never even made it to China. Um, as, as missionaries and uh, she sort of had a Salvation Army stage mum who was always sort of pushing her to the front of of the crowd and the mother, her mother was sort of the dominant figure of her life. They were sort of always falling in and out. But, yeah, Simple McPherson started preaching. You know, one of the things Pentecostals have, have always been good at is, you know, if you're good at it, you can do it. You can be a woman, you can be a black man, you know. And she really polished up some of the the edges of it. Obviously it was getting a lot of people in the door from its improvised you know improvised nature and just sheer exuberance and that but it was also clearly turning some people away and certainly other evangelicals and, and protestant groups looked down on on pentecostals and uh yeah so she started you know doing these these road shows that were quite flashy she put the you know the people who were slain in the spirit and speaking in tongues inside tents so that she'd you know welcome more people um you know sold sold brave plots next to hers i think under the slogan go up with amy had a um, you know had a, had a car with you know a sort of big banner on it that she'd drive around America, and she might have possibly been the first woman in the world to have a radio station. Um, there, there's some dispute about that, but if she wasn't the first, she she might have been one of them. And uh, yeah, so so she just really had that sense early on that you know there's this modern media that we can use to to spread the word in our way and. And yeah, she, she really grabbed a hold of it. And again, you know, it's just one of those things. Pentecostals have had an uncanny knack. You know, in, in the sixties, prosperity gospel was really spread through through those quite enterprising preachers who realised that syndicated radio um, was a huge thing to get. You know, you didn't just have to preach to your local church; you could preach to all of America while they're driving around. And, and then again today, you know, no one does social media in in the Christian world better than than Pentecostals. <laughs> there's just always been that incredible knack that just, yeah, there's just something that, that runs through uh, the, the movement in that way. Uh, and, yeah, Simple McPherson was super fascinating. I mean, she wound up, she said that she was kidnapped. It's never been proven if it's true or not. Um, the trial was inconclusive, I believe. Uh, and she turned up a few weeks later. Um, but there were rumours that she was seen driving up the coast with her lover um, you know, her husband, her second husband divorced her for, he filed papers for saying that he'd been abandoned by her. And she certainly wasn't a, fidelity wasn't her strong suit, I think it's fair to say. And, you know, she, yeah, just, just one of those, those classic kind of popular evangelists who seems to have a really incredibly flawed personal life. What, what have we got now? A, a cheating, adulterous televangelist. That's another thing we don't <laughs> see in modern Pentecostalism. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but then she was, she was quite interesting. Then she kind of politically, um, before World War Two, she travelled a bit and she, she saw speeches by, I think, Hitler, Mussolini and, and she met Gandhi. And quite early on, you know, especially the, the Pentecostals, um, you know, really um, isolationist, really had no interest in what was going on in Europe. And she took quite a strong stance on, on and saying that both fascism and communism were huge threats to the world and people should um, should take more notice and Americans should get involved. So that's quite interesting. She was very ahead of her time and um, she was a, a real Zionist, you know, really um, believed that they should, should create a special state for the Jewish people. I think uh, back in the 30s she was saying that. So... So she was quite um, interesting, yeah. She, she just sort of had a sense for prevailing winds and, you know, that, that, that sort of thing that's really hard to define, I think. And, and then quite tragically, she, she almost sort of went on a speakeasy tour when she'd sort of fallen out of favour quite a bit. And she started the Foursquare Gospel Church, which is still going strong in a lot of places. And then, yeah, sadly died of a drug overdose in the, I can't even remember exactly when, in the 40s, I think, late 40s perhaps. See, again, we didn't hear any of this in, in my fundamentalist Bible college, right? It was, no. for sure, this is all, you know, news to me about Amy Semple McPherson. Um, it sort of begs the question, is it that Pentecostalism lent itself to this entrepreneurship or did people like her set the precedent and that became, and that set the culture for Pentecostalism? What do you think? 
I think, I mean, look, it's, it's hard to know, but it seems to me that Pentecostalism is, has a lot in common, say, with, you know, like the, as I go into a fair bit in my book, the, the sort of populist right today, uh, because it's that really experiential, not fond of expertise. It's about what you feel inside of you. Um, and it, yeah, I think that's always just but by its nature, that's always been so so big to Pentecostalism that that it lends itself to those sorts of characters and and that sort of politics. Yeah, and I, I think that's even more so now. I mean, you've you've got so many different brands of Pentecostalism and so many beliefs, and it's it's a world of craziness. And one of the quotes in your book, which sort of lends itself to that, which we want to explore a bit further, is that you say that heresy is no longer a theological issue, but a political one. Talk us through that. What do you mean by that? It's so hard to disentangle because it is really just kind of caught up in the political moment right now. But um, I think if you uh, look around at, at most of these really populist leaders that are really shaking things up around the world, the Pentecostals were notably kind of their, some of their first and earliest backers. So uh, Trump, uh, Pentecostals were behind him well ahead of evangelicals. You know, it was um, Paula White Kane and people like that who were, Paula White Kane is, is quite interesting. She's quite a at the forefront of a lot of stuff that's going on. You know, she, she was really getting into, I think was it the demon sperm thing that kind of blew up, but, you know, really getting into the ideas of spiritual warfare and demonology that are a lot more prominent in the global South, but that Pentecostals in, um, in the West are, are starting to pick up on a bit more. Uh, Duterte in the Philippines had a very prominent um, Pentecostal backer, Apollo Quimby, uh, who's in a bit of trouble now for sexual abuse. Alleged, alleged. <laughs> There's a theme. <laughs> also quite famously said that he once stopped an earthquake by yelling at it. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, he, you know, really had the um, the Pentecostals behind him from early on as well, although there is an election this year. Uh, it's looking like he's kind of lost them, but I think it's probably going to be harder and harder to say the specifically Pentecostal voting bloc behind um, behind Bolsonaro because so many Brazilians are Pentecostalizing. Like it's pretty much in the process of taking over Catholicism as, as the primary religion in Brazil, which is pretty crazy because I think it was a few percent of Brazilians were evangelical or Protestant in the 80s. And it's, you know, just in 40 years almost overtaken Catholicism, you know, uh, which, you know, was 500 years. So that's crazy. But, but yeah, the... Um, the heresy idea is, yeah, really fueling some of these religious doctrines that aren't, you know, they're not the only thing motivating, say, the, the radical right in America. Um, I talk a bit about Seven Mountains Mandate, which I think is is really gaining prominence in some parts of the Republican Party and the religious right, the radical right in America. So it's not everything, you know, there's many things motivating people, but, but I really think it is the theological wing. And if people are, you know, that way inclined, it's, you know, fortifying them and, and giving them, you know, hyping them up. Some people who listen to these particular preachers like Greg Locke and Lance Wallnow and Andrew Womack were, you know, directly inspired to, to do January 6th stuff, you know, with everyone was there as, an, you know, an army of lone wolves with their different inspiration. You know, you got your QAnon guy, you got all different kinds of guys, but you definitely had some people who were directly inspired by things like the Seven Mountain Mandate and some of these um, very politically charged Pentecostal preachers. I was watching a lot of them during the pandemic when everyone, you know, shut in and and you can sort of doing these nightly broadcasts on, on Facebook and you can really see, I think, when people lost that, you know, in lockdown, lost that sense of community and, and maybe bouncing ideas off your friends and them saying, oh, that's crazy. You can kind of see people going down these rabbit holes by sitting there watching this stuff each night. So it certainly is, yeah, is melding a pretty dangerous kind of, I mean, I don't need to explain it too much to you guys, but um, yeah, really melding a dangerous sort of political Christianity that is, you know, there are some people in, in America that are essentially calling for, um, you know, Christian dominionism again. And, uh, and and unfortunately, a lot of those people are, are very much on the Pentecostal side of side of things. Speaking of the Seven Mountains Mandate, I found an article on the Seven Mountains Mandate a little while ago, and I shared it with a friend of mine that's still attending church. And mm. he said, "Oh, this is a beat up. This is you know not really going on, etc." And I wonder how you feel about that. Like from an Australian context, the Seven Mountains Mandate may just seem like American craziness, but at the same time, you're giving us, you know, evidence that no, it, it, it's not just American craziness, it's, it's really happening there. Do you think it's something that we in Australia 
need to worry about or do you think it's there's cultural walls you know sort of burying that from us yeah i I really don't think it's an issue in australia and it um drives me a bit crazy because i've just been doing so many interviews the last few weeks and everyone wants to talk about pentecostalism in australia because of scott morrison and hillsong and a lot of people do pick up on the seven mountains mandate i'm just like look it's just not a thing here like you might have one or two people that have got into this stuff online um but i think it definitely is it's it's very it's very uniquely American and of the moment. I haven't really heard people outside of America talking about it, but I'm, I'm sure it'll get around a little, you know, if it suits someone's purposes for sure. Um, but, but it really speaks to the, you know, the American moment, which is that they've, you know, the hard Christian right, um, you know, has lost their democratic battle and they're losing the demographic battle. So they don't believe in, in the, you know, things that they, that they used to claim to believe in. And so they're just going straight for Christian dominionism. And this is kind of a, a bit of a, you know, kind of sexy bent on it, I suppose, if, you know, for people that are that way inclined, you know, I don't think it's the the only game in town for for a lot of believers, but, you know, uh, one of the original authors of the book that sort of brought it back to life 10 years ago was Bill Johnson from Bethel. He was the co-author with um, Lance Wallnow and, you know, Bethel's a pretty prominent church that, um, you know, Sean Sean Foyt, I can't say his name properly, the the long-haired anti-lockdown guy, always doing those huge anti-lockdown concerts. He's a Bethel guy. You know, it's it's as important to America as Hillsong is to, you know, Australia. And and, and Bethel's also is very much with Hillsong, one of the leading lights of this third wave of Pentecostalism. So I think it's pretty significant that he would author something like that. Uh, they try to distance themselves from it publicly because um, they're quite savvy in terms of their PR, but obviously you know, if he didn't believe it, I don't think he would have co-authored it. And then, you know, one of the big promoters of Seven Mountains Mandate is David Barton, who uh, was vice president, I think, of of the Texas Republican Party for a long time and is very influential in in politics and and gets involved in um, some of the very shadowy networks. My friend Anne Nelson wrote a great book, The Shadow Network, of these far-right and Christian groups that are behind behind a lot of these Republican Party policies, you know, Cope Brothers funding and all, all that kind of stuff. And he's very involved in that, so so I don't think it's don't think it's just so easy to say it's a fad and to ignore it when when you you know you do have a, you know a senior uh, Republican figure and a very prominent evangelical in Bill Johnson. You know, Bill Johnson was at Toronto Blessing, and he was you know one of the people that was that uh, Wagner said was yeah in you know part of the New Apostolic Reformation, and and he's really much part of that clique. So so I do think that it's. It's significant in that way. As for it coming to Australia, I, I mean, I just don't think that there's the political or social will or incentives for it to happen. You know, in America, just just electorally, you need to fire up your evangelical base if you're on the right with this kind of stuff. In Australia, we have compulsory voting. It, that's going to turn people off. You know, it's never going to to get to be a political thing. And and you know, something like Hillsong, which is probably the you know, I'd say is, is a fairly huge chunk of Pentecostalism in Australia. I mean, you go there and it's just diverse, multicultural kids under 25 there for the music, basically. I can't see them getting fired up by that kind of message. And if anything, they'd probably get turned off by it. What's interesting, though, is that Bethel has a real influence in the churches here. When I was doing some research into Pentecostalism in Australia and looking at what's going on in their websites, a lot of them are connected to Bethel, maybe not politically, but that sort of school of supernatural ministry style stuff yeah. that does seem to have a, you know, like there's a, a church in Melbourne called stairway, which is quite a big one. They are officially tied to Bethel. There's assemblies of God or Australian Christian churches that align themselves with Bethel as well. But it's funny, you know, cause we talk about the seven mountains mandate and saying, it's not going to be much of a, a push here yet. We do have a Pentecostal prime minister and we do have quite a few Pentecostal winners of things like Australian Idol and <laughs> The Voice and stuff like that. So whether it's actually a real threat, they they do see the fruit of it and I'm sure they're um, quite happy with their prayers. Yeah, and I mean, I think the other interesting thing which I try to touch on in the book and, and again, it's something, you know, that that I got from, from some people in academia that's been writing about this stuff. Um, uh, Independent Network Christianity is a really great book by Richard Flory and Brad Christensen and also Andre Gagne, who's an academic in Canada and an ex-Pentecostal preacher himself. They've, they've all written really well about how this third wave of Pentecostalism is really about, it's not just about saving your soul, it's about transforming society. It's really moving ideas of being born again from, you know, liberation and restoration to conquering. 
Um, and that's, I think that's really significant. And that's where, where it is worthwhile, you know, understanding the seven mountains mandate in that context, in that it is such a, this Pentecostal movement is, is really coming into its own for the way that it gets people wanting to do transformational things to society, sometimes for better, you know, South Africa, sometimes it's the only thing you can do because there's no jobs, everyone's corrupt, you know, and so that's how people fortify themselves and are creating their own almost parastate uh, through their church. But then, yeah, the other end, it's, um, it's yeah, so, some of the most venal people <laughs> on earth, uh, to, to my mind, in, in America that just want to um, conquer things almost for conquering's sake. I, I guess with that politicisation that you, you've spoken about, I mean, one thing that politics really loves is war. Um, when we were in the fold, um, disciples and soldiers of Christ were often interchangeable, you know, lending to that that idea that we're at war. We used to put on the full armour of God, didn't we? And, you know, we had the sword of the spirit and the helmet of something and the... A, a breastplate. Yeah, the breastplate of righteousness. We used to gird our loins with truth. Do you remember that? Absolutely. Now I gird my loins with my uh, bonds undies, but once upon a time, gird with true. Well, it was there, and it was, and it was. A, it's very warlike type prayers that you would pray as a Pentecostal. So you speak about that Pentecostal ideology being driven by that war agenda, and we're at a war to win souls, and those sort of things. We both experience that. Tell us how that played out in the interactions that you had while you're researching for this book. Sure. I mean, it, like I said, it, it, it can be difficult to explain because, you know, you sort of say these are a lot of people are interested in social justice, but perhaps not in the way that social justice is a real pejorative thing. Again, if you look around the world, the majority of Pentecostals and Pentecostal converts are usually young women. Um, so they're not, you know, necessarily, um, I'd probably say overwhelmingly, you know, the type of people that are, are getting, you know, politically mad and want to you know, want Christian dominionism and things like that. So it is often very community first focused. Um, but but certainly you do see angles. I mean, you hear, um, uh, you know, a lot of stuff about the Great Commission. Uh, that to me is probably the the overwhelming um, thing. One of the most, yeah, over, over, uh, um, one of the most prominent sort of doctrinal things that, that you would hear around the world um, was the, the Great Commission. And I think that that is, again, yeah, really inspiring to a lot of people but you can also see how people can can take it a lot further so yeah it just it just invariably seems to have a political edge to it and it's hard to necessarily nail down why I think it's probably something to do with the fact that yeah Pentecostals have always been so great to speaking to the here and now someone said to me in a favela in Brazil you know the Catholics told us we can have a good life in the next one the Pentecostals the Pentecostals told us that we can have a good life in this one too and that is, you know, that's that's a pretty powerful thing, and you know, I, I think I think it's pretty fair to say that Pentecostalism is, on the whole, globally, the religion of the working poor. There, there is, yeah, there, there is just so much about the the here and now uh, that it speaks to that I think it's just, and maybe it just is the times that we're living in that it just kind of can't not be political. Um, it's just, yeah, to, to nail down exactly why and how, because it looks a bit different everywhere else. Conditions are a bit different. It's, it's a bit difficult, but, but yeah, the edge is there because it's speaking to people's material needs. You spoke in your book about the, the failure of the state in some of these countries, especially some of the developing countries and about how Pentecostalism, you touched on it then, but how Pentecostalism is helping people out of things like addiction and helping them out of poverty. When I, when I first heard this on another interview you did, I thought to myself, yeah, that's true. And I've seen that in, in my friends' lives, e even here in Australia. But it comes at a cost. Like, you know, that yes, they'll help you out of poverty, they'll help you out, of, but then you've got to buy into all this, you know, you've got to buy into Pentecostalism, basically, and then it's almost impossible to leave. What, what did you see in some of these other countries, right? You know, you, you focused on Brazil, Korea, um, Nigeria. What are you seeing in terms of them meeting where the state has failed yeah the, i think this is probably the most interesting thing to me in my book so i kind of go back to it a bit um is that yeah because everyone you know i do been doing a lot of interviews over the last few weeks and everyone says oh prosperity gospel i mean isn't that awful i'm like well thing is there's a lot of evidence that it works um especially out of brazil it's been pretty well researched and and basically yeah because people people tend to get their lives together when they join a Pentecostal church. And because we're really still quite early on in the Pentecostalization of things, people are 
coming to it as born again. You know, there aren't so many people that are born into the faith. And, you know, longer term, I think maybe that'll stop the slow and maybe stop the power of it when you're just kind of raised like that. But, but in places like that, people are converting actively to Pentecostalism, having that born again moment, having that narrative of what went before and, and what comes after. And that demarcation really seems to speak to people. They, you know, tend to get their lives together. They've got an accountability network around them. You know, if you're having problems with a drink or whatever, maybe it's just getting up early in the morning for church is just something that stops you maybe going out the night before. And, and also people's material conditions tend to improve. Um, you know, I sort of spoke to a few people and there's certainly examples of, you know, the your, your Pentecostal preacher is, you know, a, they're probably, you know, in your poor little town on the edge of the rainforest or your favela, but they, you know, your Catholic um, priest was probably educated in Europe. They're probably white and they were just kind of dropped into your community. Your, your Pentecostal preacher grew up with you in the same streets, you know, knows what it's like, mixed race like you, same, you know, dialects and, and lingo that you use. And the, the relationship is often very much like a mentor um, that, that they have with their parishioners and they very aware of competition so you know they are really charismatic and do tend to get quite involved in the lives of people for better and for worse um you know we'll say you know we'll go start that small business you've always dreamed of and i'll encourage the congregation to go shopping there and stuff like that happens and so you, they're really building up solidarity networks um south africa as well is very much the the case and, and like i said you know there's a it's really um you know millennials in south africa so horribly let down um by the post-apartheid era you know they were promised that they were finally going to get their get their time and youth unemployment 75 percent in south africa um corruption is just absolutely horrendous um state services are always crumbling and yeah the church is often the only place that you know might somewhere to take the kids after school while you're working two jobs to make ends meet um you know they're, they're doing soccer practice and 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 doing a bit of music and they're not running out in the streets with 75 percent youth unemployment you know um so, so people it just seems to just seems to get people's lives together a bit and and it really is those those networks and um and a, another really big driver to pentecostalism is is people feeling alienated in big cities I don't think it's um, it's an accident that things like Hillsong really takes off in these really big global cities, you know, Moscow, Sao Paulo, Cape Town, uh, Los Angeles, London, because people, you know, go to these cities from their small town or their, you know, small country in Africa or whatever, and, and they just feel alienated. And it's just a bit of a community, you know, it's someone to sing and dance and meet people a bit like you with similar interests and maybe similar temperament or things like that, meet a partner. Uh, Nigerians, uh, Pentecostals are really great at organising speed dating because uh, they don't people stuck in the, the Lagos traffic. So, um, yeah, it's just all that that kind of stuff that, you know, as I keep coming back to, Pentecostals are just great at speaking to people's needs in the here and now. And, and yeah, that there's certainly a lot of evidence that that people's lives do tend to improve once they, they join Pentecostal churches. That's been a big theme in our podcast, hasn't it, Brian, that uh, community is something that a lot of people that leave Pentecostalism, that's what they claim to miss the most, is that is that community. But I also want to resonate with some of the other religious communities we see around the world where they support one another, and that's the success of like Jewish communities around the world where they do exactly that. They come together, they support one another, they shop at you know each other's businesses, you know, etc. And 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 they do, and they they prosper as a community, not just as individuals. So it's interesting that that's the model that Pentecostals in developing nations tend to be adhering to. Well, I think it's it's a sociological response, which is under the cover of a theological response. And you know, people say, "Oh, this it's God that this is happening," but it's it's a really good community mindedness and it's really a really good sociological model which i guess connects people it does it does bring success and but you know they say it's god it's the reason you've come here god's doing this stuff yeah and no, i I'm, I'm with you I, I find the um the sociological stuff around it really really interesting but um yeah sometimes it, it is a bit hitting your head against a brick wall because you kind of ask people and they say, oh, it's God, you know. One of the things that, that drove me a bit mad writing the book um, was saying to people, you know, especially some of the dodgier preachers, you know, that I was uh, following around South Africa that are doing some really extreme things, you know, turning petrol into pineapple and you know, giving their congregation <laughs> shots of petrol and um, eating live snakes and um, and getting very rich in the process and having, you know, Rolls Royce for yourself and your wife and all that kind of thing. And then say to people, you know, followers, really, really devoted. Um, 
and they absolutely love their guy, you know, and I say, well, what do you like about him? They say, oh, he's such a man of God. I'd be like, but what, what about that, you know, is, and it was so hard and I could just never get a satisfactory response. And I kind of just had to in the end say, is it, and, and this might be too reductive, I'd be interested in your thought, but is it almost just like saying like, why do you love your football team? Like I, I love Arsenal. Oh, I hate them as well because they make my life miserable most weekends. But, you know, and it's like if someone kind of asks you, why do you love them? And it's kind of, like, oh, well, they're the best, you know, or I, and I love them, you know, and is it, yeah, it just kind of felt to me that it, it was just such an intangible thing, but people feel such a connection with their preacher and often cannot explain it. Yeah, and look, I think it's a, that community thing. I mean, we've spoken about this in the podcast that I definitely overstayed my time in Pentecostalism and overstayed my time in Christianity as a whole, not because of the draw of God, but the draw of community. You know, the draw of, you know, it's a one-stop shop. It's a place there, like, you, like you've spoken about, Al. You know, it, it really does bring that connectedness. It brings that sense of well-being overall. So leaving it, you're leaving that behind and you've got to start again. It's it's like moving countries, even though you might stay in the same suburb. So it's, it's a world you're so immersed in and extricating yourself from that can take a long time and it takes a bit of bravery for some people, but uh, it's because the stuff that you've said and there's also an authoritarianism too like we can't downplay that as much as yeah. you know everything that you're saying l is is 100 true and, and we we agree with you but there is also the dark side of this sort of authoritarianism and so they are taught to you know pentecostals are taught to you know touch not the lord's anointed um don't challenge your leaders etc and so you know they may not know why they love their leader but they have been taught that that's the answer to give in, in all truth, internally, they do genuinely believe that they love their leader. And that's part of the, the, the package of Pentecostalism. You accept Jesus into your heart, you um, become part of a local community, local church, and you, you know, submit to the leadership and the eldership in the church. Yeah, very, very much so. That that sense of leaving community is something I've, yeah, really, really noticed over and over again. When, when people do uh, leave the church, it, it is really at a at a personal cost, um, yeah, of losing, you know, sort of feeling like you have to start your life over again. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's certainly something that, that that you do see time and time again. Absolutely. Look, we are we are coming to to a close. We are coming to the end. I guess you know you really immersed yourself in that Pentecostal world. You you went to South Africa, you went to South America, North America, and where was the other place you went? Yeah, I went to Korea. Um, South Africa, Mozambique, Nigeria, quite a few states of America, the UK, Brazil, Guatemala. We like Guatemala because we used to have a friend of ours in church that that's how he spoke in tongues. He would repeat the word True. Guatemala over and over again. <laughs> We're not making this up. So he'd sit there in, in meetings going, Guatemala, 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 Guatemala. Yeah. I'm going to seek for an interpretation now. Yes, I know. Definitely. Um, like I said, I, I, I do love a good excuse to go and travel to places, but it, you know, it is, it is pretty interesting. There's not a lot of things that, oh, I don't know, maybe there are a lot of things, but, but yeah, seeing something that's happening on such a, a global scale, but is also so localized um, was, was yeah, really interesting. I mean, we asked before, did you encounter a miracle? Did you get that miracle? You've said no, but during that time, did, do you think you encountered the divine? No, I didn't. And I was quite, quite open to it, almost, almost wanting it to happen, you know, and, and I, you know, read about there's, um, I think it's the, the great Pentecostal scholar, Alan Anderson. I think I heard from someone that, and gosh, I hope I'm not wrong, but that I, I think he was another denomination and went up studying Pentecostalism and, and, you know, feeling that the spirit had come to him and, and converting. Um, so I was kind of interested and then someone had told me oh, that they'd heard of other people that sort of academics and things that got into it and then, and then converted themselves. So yeah, it's almost, so no, it's like, yeah, would have been almost cool in a way to have that experience because, like I said, I'm open to it. Um, don't don't know if I'd make a great pious person, um, but but yeah, uh, but no, just um, just sadly nothing there. And and yeah, I guess to me maybe that's the most interesting thing. Maybe, maybe that is the hand of God at work that I w really probably went came out of it with a more open mind than I went into it. So you've come out with an open mind. Would you say that your agnosticism has shifted then? Um, no, just, no, I think, I think it's just the very 
boring old-fashioned idea of just just maybe learning a lot about people and understanding them a bit more and 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 reading some respect out of that perhaps um and just as I said I mean maybe it's just the way that I you know put this into context in my way of understanding it was you know through very political sociological kind of material edge and and really understanding you know doing a lot of interviews and getting asked about all this stuff and saying well you've got to you know prosperity gospel tends to work for people and 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 that kind of stuff and and I think that that stuff is the is the really interesting things is really understanding what it's giving people in the here and now and um yeah look if I'm a if I'm a young woman in in a poor community I'm probably converting I mean why not you give it a shot People, yeah, people tend to believe in, in most other parts of the world much more than we do in the kind of secular Australia. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's just, yeah, like I said, I met some some wonderful people, met some absolute living saints and met some of the biggest crooks and charlatans uh, you'll ever find. So <laughs> that to me is, uh, yeah, that's kind of the story of Pentecostalism. And, and then the continuation of that story would be then later on you would lose your faith and start a podcast because that tends to be uh, what happens or at least engage the, the sort of ex-evangelical community. Hey, Elle, I really want to um, celebrate your book again because it is wonderful and for those of us that have, have lived this, it's even more meaningful. So the book is called Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World, which we will also um, affirm at least they're trying to do. Where will they gonna where will people find this book? Uh all all good booksellers. Uh so it's uh out, you know, on, on Amazon and places like that and in bookstores. It came out in the UK in uh late November. Uh but there's been global supply chain issues so uh with, with printing. So it hasn't been that easy to get there. It's out in Australia at the moment for sure. And it should be out in America in about a month. Um and I'm shortly going over there to, to do some stuff for it. Awesome. Get it, read it, people. If you can't get a paper copy, go buy a Kindle or some other device. Kindle is not our sponsor yet, but get one, whack it on there and have a read. It is a fantastic read and it's, it's super, super interesting. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thank you so much for the discussion today. An hour has gone super quick. Um, so it's it's really interesting to chat to someone who's been so immersed and also someone who, who hasn't been in the scene, someone who has come from an outside look, reasonably objective from what you're saying. You were really open to it. Nothing happened, but it's uh, it's just great to, been great to chat with you. Yeah, no, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm just glad that it kind of passed the, the mustard of people that know what they're talking about far more than I do. So I, I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, totally. We learned we learned a whole lot from you from both the book and also um, this interview. So that's it from us, Brian. I guess uh, next week there's just going to be more of the same, more teenage fundamentalism or at least post-teenage fundamentalism. There is. Um, I can't remember what we've got next week, but it doesn't matter. Just just tune in next week and have a listen. Yeah, it's a podcast. Who listens in order? All right, mate. I'll see you next week. All righty. See ya.